This is the Blood Doctor Show on a Wednesday. And it seems like I miss a lot of days in my, you know, attempts to record five days a week, which obviously doesn't happen, but I don't seem to miss a lot of Wednesdays. I feel like I'm here in the studio saying on a Wednesday a lot. Maybe I'm not, but it feels that way to me. So, And the tone of this podcast is probably going to be different than I originally intended it because I was going to come here and sit and talk such great things about my son Jed again. I was going to sit here and wax poetic about how much I love this team. And yet again, we have done something so incredibly stupid that it's going to take me a couple of minutes to to even build up to being able to talk about this one. So uh, I'm already angry just thinking about it. I was going to record last night and I had to like go sleep because I was so fucking upset about the Suns blowing the game against the Nets. But anyway, before I rant about that, and this is why this episode is called Rant City 2, by the way, because I have another thing I want to rant about. And that is this tragedy of a film called Music that has been created by this person, Saya, who is apparently a singer. And I just really, as a person who I have autistic family members, I have, I have diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I have a lot of personal and a lot of familial experience with what goes on with, you know, neurodivergent people and what life is actually like. And regardless of whether or not you're talking about the film music or you're talking about the use of bipolar disorder in the use of, or excuse me, in the film Midsummer, whatever the case may be, I am imploring people who make movies and television shows to just please stop trying to write stories or tell stories that you have no business writing or telling. If you don't personally have experience with autism and you are not autistic, you should not be writing a movie about autism. And you should most certainly not be explaining why you refuse to work with an autistic actress because it was too hard for her or some other bullshit. Like, every single step of the way, when this movie was announced, everyone reached out to Saya and said, don't do this. This is not smart. You have no business, um, you know, making a film about this. And, you know, the fact that you didn't even cast a neurodivergent person in a neurodivergent role means that you don't even understand what you're doing. You're trying to portray something that you don't even understand. And, you know, they fired. She fired back. Oh, well. You know, I tried and it was difficult for her. So I just cast Maddie instead because of, you know, how hard the work schedule was, blah, blah, blah. And just a bunch of other tone deaf bullshit that just yet again indicated that this person doesn't even understand that what they're doing is wrong. When autistic people tell you that you shouldn't be making a film about them, you should not tell those people that they don't understand what you're trying to do. And that's been... What this person has done is every, at every step and every turn is explained how everyone is simply not intelligent enough to see their vision. And that once we all saw the film, we would see how stupid we were and how incredible the vision was and how we were all the ones who missed the mark. Well, guess what? All the reviews have come out and it turns out every single one of us was correct. You simply don't have the right to make films, especially when you're trying to make artistic films about subjects 
of which you know nothing, and you certainly don't have the right to lecture people who are actually in those groups about those things. And so I'm just imploring people who make movies and, you know, television, whatever it is, if you really want to make a movie on this subject, then fucking hire a team of people who... Hire neurodivergent people. If you want to make a movie about bipolar disorder, hire people who have bipolar disorder. Like, I just, I don't... Why are we excluded from getting to talk about what we go through? Why is it somehow the purview of other people to explain what what is, you know, the daily life of someone that they don't even, you're not them, you're not us, you don't understand. And as a person who's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, although my personal experiences on a daily basis are not the same as a person with autism, specifically in a lot of cases relating to I am overly emotional when some people with autism struggle communicating the emotions that they have with us, whereas I'm constantly screaming them at other people all the time. My my daily experience may be different from them, but so much of what goes on is a shared experience. I have certain verbal and physical, you know, I don't, I don't want to call them tics, but I have certain habits that I can't break free of when I'm really anxious and I have certain stammering problems when I'm so hyper hyped up about something. And that's why, by the way, I'm not sure if people notice, like I don't, um, some people I read online edit their podcasts like to a T. Like I edit my podcasts. I edit my mistakes. When I say something that I didn't mean to say, or phrase something incorrectly, I cut it out and I rephrase it. But I don't like go through my podcast and cut out every stammer. I don't cut out every every single mistake. I don't really appreciate people who do because I don't think it contributes to the experience. For me, a podcast is a discussion. And sure, when you're listening, it's one-sided. When you're talking, it's one-sided. Maybe it's a two-person discussion if you have it, you know, two people in the studio like most podcasts do. I guess I'm alone, so I'm a little different. But the point is... When you remove every single piece of anything, every space, every stammer, every, uh, every, you know, you just, I don't know, it ruins the authenticity of it to me. And maybe other people disagree. Um, maybe for those people, the fact that it's not radio means they want to take the opportunity to cut and, you know, root, cut out every single piece of whatever. But I just, I prefer being myself a little bit. And, and so this is, I think, you know, this, the reason I bring this up on the other topic is that, you know, it's not like bipolar people or people with autism are not willing to talk about these things. And I bitched about the movie Midsummer before, and I'm not trying to glom that on to the music thing, but they're just both one in the same is that people who don't understand what they're talking about, trying to trivialize something that other people go through and, and reduce it. Like, by the way, many great artists are bipolar and, you know, many people who, have autism live, I mean, they live phenomenal lives and so many movies reduce it to just like, oh, you have autism. You can't talk to anyone. You can't. And it's just not true. That's not how it works. And it's just so frustrating to watch all of these things. It just happens over and over where, you know, in Glee, a few years back, they had the character in a wheelchair so that they could do a scene where he stands up and dances in a musical in his head. And so that's essentially why they never cast a person in a wheelchair in that role. And it's just like, why, why are you doing that? Like, it's just, it's offensive. It's rude. It's, 
And I'm just imploring people, if you want to talk about a subject, if you feel passionately about a subject, even if you don't have, you know, that disorder or, you know, whatever the case may be, and you want to tell a story about it, there's nothing wrong with that. But you need to tell the story of a person who actually has gone through it. And you need to tell that story with the help of people who can actually tell you what you should be saying. You might still be the director of a film. You might still craft a story, beginning, middle, and end, all these things. But just don't tell the story of a fake person in a fictional way and then say, this is what autism is like. And that's what this music movie is. And it's just frustrating that no matter what the disorder, no matter what, just don't tell a story that's not yours. And it's weird that I even have to say this stuff. You would think to me, this seems obvious. Like, I feel like everyone would know this offhand, but it continues to happen. And I just really hope that just stop telling stories. that aren't yours. Like, I, I don't know. I, don't, I just feel like this is so basic. Every time that I see bipolar disorder come up in a movie, it's used in a way that is a completely fucking incorrect portrayal. It's just not how everyone thinks it is. Do you want to know what bipolar disorder is? Here's bipolar disorder. I haven't recorded an episode of this show in several days because I'm in my own head about how good the show is or isn't and what should not or should not be in the show. No one has complained to me. No one has said you're doing a bad job. I've gotten more listeners as I've gone. I've received several compliments. No one has said, hey, you need to change this. And I'm sure there are things I can tweak. But the simple fact of the matter is, is I've been working hard and doing a decent job. And yet, nonetheless, I've been in my head for like three days about it. And then I had to come out here into my studio and sit for two hours watching episodes of Scrubs, sitting there going up and down, up and down with each good and bad part of each episode to like get myself into a somehow mood that I could record. That's fucking bipolar disorder, okay? Where you have days on end of just not feeling like you're even a person and you can't get out of bed, okay? It's not some fucking magical, mythical thing that makes you into an evil monster sometimes and then makes you into, makes you into a happy-go-lucky clown on the other side. It's not like that. And I just get tired of these portrayals of my think what I go through it's portrayed as a fucking joke and I can only imagine how you know my family member with autism feels about this I can only remember imagine how those of you who have autistic family members or neurodivergent family members feel about constantly being displayed as you know a fucking caricature it just I just wish that this stuff would stop. And if you're just a neurotypical person and you don't have these disorders and you haven't gone through these experiences, please stop trying to tell stories that aren't yours. And I hate to keep repeating myself on that, but that is a drum that needs to be hammered by everybody because it is simply common sense. You know, we're not hiring, you know, white directors to direct movies about the Black Panthers, right? Like the, just ask people who have been involved to just, uh, I've made my point. I've made my point on this subject. It's just something that really frustrates the hell out of me. Don't go see this movie and everyone needs to just everyone, you know, if you don't want to hammer them, just make it known that these kind of things should not be made and don't go see this movie. Please don't contribute money to, you know, this idea that uh, just just please don't contribute money. Let's move on. Let's go to the new subject. Despite this being uh, recently 
the off season as we have just completed the Super Bowl in one of the best seasons of football that I've ever enjoyed as a fan of the game. Tom Brady getting number seven and the Bucks just doing all kinds of cool shit along the way, throwing the ball deep all the time, showing off the arm strength that Tom Brady still has, all that good stuff. Um, it's been a good season, and now the offseason seems like it's going to be really interesting as well. We all know there's going to be a boatload of quarterback movement. Everyone's talked about that. But J.J. Watt asked for his release from the Texans, and boom, he gets it. And now the question is, where is he going to go? Everyone kind of thought it was going to be with the Steelers, with you know his brothers, but you know there's some thought that that may not be the case. The Steelers look like they may move on from Ben Roethlisberger at this point. Um, the Steelers GM Kevin Colbert came out and said, basically, Ben wants to come back, and we told him we're not sure about that, and that came out today. And so we're at a point where, you know, if Ben Roethlisberger moves on from the Steelers, depending on who the Steelers replace him with, you know, they're not necessarily a contender anymore. I mean, they just had a really good season or a really good start to a season, and then they folded. You know, when you lose a Hall of Fame quarterback, the changeover is going to be tough pretty much no matter who you are, unless you have another Hall of Fame quarterback lined up. You know, the Packers with Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre proved that, but, you know, look at what happened with the Patriots with Tom Brady and Cam Newton. And not necessarily that Cam Newton, I don't, I've never looked at his stats about whether he's a Hall of Fame quarterback, but I just mean he's past his prime. He's not prime Cam Newton anymore. So, you know, certainly that, that affects, you know, that follow up. But, if J.J. Watt is looking to join a contender, even with his brothers in Pittsburgh, you know, he wants to win a ring, you know, they may not be able to do that. And so it kind of seems like the top two teams at this point, at least from what we see, are the Browns and the Packers. That's that's what it is. Um, I'm surprised there's not been any discussion about Tampa Bay. I mean, he's made a lot of money. You know, surely he could take, you know, a vet minimum deal. I know Tampa Bay wants to bring everyone back, but I'm surprised there's no, like, given a look there. You know, I see a lot of Patriots fans on social media, but, you know, again, why would he go there? He's only going to go to contenders, and it's interesting that apparently he considers the Brown a con- the Browns a contender, and obviously it makes sense why he would consider the Packers. He's, you know, from Wisconsin, you know, Aaron Rodgers maybe in his last year with Green Bay. You know, it, it makes a lot of sense there. I mean, that one, that link seems to be a home run to me. I'm surprised about the Browns link, but I mean, the Browns defense is good. They'd only get better with water around. They have a great running game. Baker Mayfield was good at times this year. So um, it's certainly interesting, but that, you know, what does JJ Watt have left? Um, you know, that's a tough question to answer. We haven't, you know, he's still great when he plays, but, you know, we certainly haven't seen him affecting games at the level that he once did, just given that the Texans aren't even really winning anymore. Um, and, you know, uh, maybe he'll be more rejuvenated. It's certainly, you certainly can't blame him. The, you know, the way they tore that team apart had nothing to do with him. So uh, hard to blame him for anything. You'd think if he's rejuvenated, he's probably got one or two good years left, at least as, you know, a pass rusher on part-time downs, maybe not an every-down player, but um, hard to believe that J.J. Watt is a negative on your roster in any way. So certainly I think, you know, for whoever signs him, it's going to be a positive. Again, I'm surprised there's no looking at Tampa Bay, but, you know, he does strike me as the kind of dude who um, maybe doesn't necessarily want to glom on to an already championship team, but wants to help put another team over the top. The Packers haven't won in forever. You know, it makes some sense. The Browns have literally never won a Super Bowl. They've won AFL championships, but, um, you know, it makes some sense. Um, 
certainly if he came to Green Bay and they won a Super Bowl, he would be a hero forever. And certainly if he went to the Browns and they won a Super Bowl, he would be a hero forever. And him being there would be hugely lauded as part of it, regardless of, you know, how it actually played out. So I think that, you know, if he's chasing some sort of legacy move, you know, that's why those moves make sense. Um, but good for him for not just going the easiest route, which would be, you know, helping make Tampa Bay an even more super team with, you know, making it an even more phenomenal defense. Um, but, you know, who knows? Another guy, though, that's um, now could be available, which could affect this, too, maybe, is is Vaughn Miller. And the Broncos have a team option for him. And there's some possibility that they might pick it up. There's some possibility that they could extend him. You know, you look at Denver reporting, um, guys like Benjamin Albright, they say that the team wants to extend him, but it hasn't obviously been done yet. So that is an interesting situation. And I could definitely see J.J. Watt could theoretically wait, see what happens with Vaughn Miller, because teams that miss on Vaughn Miller might want to take a swing at J.J. Watt, and that could actually increase his... Um, you know, his, his market. And that, that'll be another question too, is with what is do dollars matter at all? Is it only about winning? Um, you know, these, these kinds of things, obviously he's going to, you know, the only person who can answer them is him, but those questions will affect all of the choices that he makes. And certainly what happens with Von Miller, if he just re-ups in Denver, then, you know, maybe it doesn't affect anything, but let's say that some team that is a contender or near contender breaks the bank for Von Miller that, you know, potentially takes, you know, a suitor off the market for Watt. But if someone else swings and misses, maybe they want him, you know, these things are all interconnected. So, and not that they necessarily play the exact same way or play the exact same position, but, you know, you're looking for defensive line help, you know, these are going to be two of the top guys on the market. And so it's certainly going to be interesting to see what happens. Obviously, as far as Tampa Bay goes, what happens with Shaq Barrett and Dominican Sue also, who, you know, they will be, you know, people will be very interested in them as well. So there's a lot going on um, in terms of defensive players, um, you know, at the top of the market. This is a big year for NFL free agency, honestly. Um, and it's crazy that it's happening in a pandemic, but we're going to see like record quarterback movement. Um, we're going to see, you know, a lot of names, you know, maybe potentially change hands. Some of them may just re-up, but there's a lot of names in free agency this year, not only in quarterbacks, but, you know, Tampa Bay has a whole slew of guys, Chris Godwin for one. Um, so there's a lot of Levante David, another guy in Tampa Bay. There's a lot of free agents. And so there are going to be a lot of potential moves and a lot of, there could be some big contracts. There could be some teams that are really going for it, you know, making a swing. So, you know, we'll see how it all shakes out, but this is going to be a really interesting year for free agency. And it's going to be really interesting for quarterbacks, especially if, you know, the Steelers move on from Big Ben. Would he want to play another year somewhere else? That feels like a situation where he's going to say Steelers are nothing. And if they choose choose to move on, he'd probably hang it up. But you never know. Like, you just never know. And so it's going to be a really interesting year, Um, you know, offseason and headed into next season with, you know, Tampa Bay. I, my eyes are obviously on Tampa Bay, you know, and Tom making a run at number eight, because depending on what Tampa Bay does in this free agency, that's very possible. So one last thing on the NFL that is certainly interesting. Um, Dove Kleinman, who is an independent NFL reporter on Twitter, Dove, D-O-V underscore Kleinman, um, is really good follow. Big time Tom Brady guy, so if you, you know, hate Tom Brady, maybe don't follow him. But in any case, he 
you know, played this video that was, you know, apparently from some conference in 2017. And it was Jim Gray talking to Tom Brady and Pat McAfee actually played this on his show. And essentially, you know, Jim Gray asked Tom Brady if he feels respected by Bill Belichick and Bob Kraft. And he says, I plead the fifth. And I don't understand how this didn't, I don't know how this didn't come out, but I was someone who sat there and said that, you know, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady's relationship was way more solid than anyone understood. And all the things that ESPN and everyone else said about them were, you know, in terms of them potentially breaking up were false. And, you know, it just all <laughs> it certainly seems that it was true. And, you know, this is something that I have to accept at some point is that there is at least some people at ESPN who can do their job and report correctly, at least these days, because for a while there wasn't. But nonetheless, it definitely shows that, um, you know, as as much as some of us would have loved to believe that, you know, the relationship was perfect and impenetrable, that it was actually frosty for a long time. And obviously it was clearly it was clear that it was very penetrable once Tom Brady left for Tampa Bay. But, you know, I always just believed that Bill believed that his system worked because of Tom Brady, that you could, you know, move on from veterans and bring in young guys and, you know, fill the holes and all these things because you have the superstar elite all-time quarterback there. And, you know, that's clearly also what Tom Brady thought. And he eventually wanted to, you know, say, hey, let's bring in some other guys. I want, you know, these weapons. And, you know, the Patriots wouldn't listen. And here we have it. But it's definitely interesting to see what, you know, a rejuvenated Tom Brady looks like. Obviously, a Super Bowl MVP. And, you know, now, I mean, again, depending on what Tampa Bay does, I mean... This team could come back and win it all again. So it's just certainly interesting to to hear that we know that at least at, for the last four years, Tom Brady has not maybe felt like, you know, the, you know, he like everything is, you know, great. And, you know, the thing is, is that that can probably date back to at least with Belichick. It could certainly date back to like 2014. You know, when they originally brought in Garoppolo and there was, you know, some question about, you know, them moving on and, you know, the whole Kansas City game and uh, before they eventually went on and beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. But, you know, there's some possibility that this actually dates back not just three, four years, but seven years. And so that certainly is, you know, the fact that they were able to continue to win so much um, certainly is impressive. But I do think also it also illustrates how important. Gronk is to Tom Brady and where that, you know, where that kind of drew the line because, you know, the Patriots just ran Gronk into the ground and ran him out of the game and ruined the love of the game for him. And, you know, just they made him hate it. And um, he was hurt. And, you know, you hear these stories on Twitter about, you know, at the, after the Super Bowl against the Rams, he was, you know, broken down and could barely walk. And now he's, you know, scores two touchdowns against the Buccaneers and he's dancing all day the next day. And it's just very clear that, you know, the way that Bill Belichick handles guys sometimes is maybe not always to the best of that player's interest, but is maybe to the best of the team's interests at certain times. And that's fine. But, you know, I mean, he ran Gronk out of town. He tried to trade Gronk, you know, and it just you reach a certain point where, you know, it's Bill's fault that all of this happened. I don't want to hear anything about Tom Brady leaving. Like all Tom Brady did was ask for the Patriots to increase, you know, their skill position, um, uh, talent. 
And the Patriots basically said no. It's not a big deal for a quarterback to ask for receivers. You know, everyone wants to sit here and ask, like, act like, oh, it's he wanted to control. He wanted to be bigger than the team. It's not a big. You think Aaron Rodgers just never asked for a receiver? You think Peyton Manning didn't ask the Colts to add Reggie Wayne when they had Marvin Harrison already? Like, come on, you know, you people make demands. And you know, look at Tampa Bay. You think they're pissed about the quarterback asking them to add weapons because they want a ring? So, you know, Bill Belichick, he's great, but you're not bigger than the best quarterback of all time. And I think that is something that that's the lesson that the Patriots will learn from this. And unfortunately, that's a lesson that you can't come back from. He doesn't return. He's not coming back. So it sucks, but it is what it is. And that's the end of the NFL portion. But there is one thing on the NBA before I go into recent stuff that I want to get into. And this is something that has caused um, much consternation on my Twitter account, on um, Facebook, which is hilarious. You go to the Ringer NBA Facebook group and you just post something kind of questionable and people lose their minds for days. Um, also, an NBA group chat I'm in, I had to had to start like muting and unfollowing people because I couldn't stand the, the nonsense. But in any case, here's my take on this. There's no question that Steph Curry is a better shooter than Damian Lillard. There's no question that Steph Curry has had a better career than Damian Lillard. These things are not questions, right? We know the answer to both of those things, and I'm not disputing either one. What I am disputing is the idea that Steph Curry is completely better than Dame Lillard based on his career accomplishments. Because here's the thing. If Dame Lillard and Steph Curry were switched, their careers would be very, very different. The best player that Damian Lillard has ever played with is CJ McCollum this year, right? Or LaMarcus Aldridge. Prime. He had prime LaMarcus Aldridge for a season or two. They were good. They were decent. Um, but you know, not like an MVP candidate or anything. He's had Yusuf Nurkic for a time, then he was broken. But Dame Lillard has never had, you know, multiple all NBA players around him. He's never had a guy like Draymond Green screening for him and running the offense as a point guard. He's never had another shooter like Clay Thompson. And CJ is good, but he is not Clay Thompson. And CJ is also nowhere near Clay's universe on defense. And yeah. I'm not saying that Steph is as good, or excuse me, I'm not saying that Dame is as good as Steph. What I'm saying is that if you swap them and you put Steph Curry on an island by himself in Portland and made him play with, you know, Al Farouk Aminu and Rodney Hood and, you know, Zach Collins and all these things, I'm sorry, but he doesn't have multiple rings and he probably doesn't have an MVP. Like, just truthfully, like, that's that's what it is, like... And, you know, Dame, everyone's like, well, Dame's shooting percentages, blah, blah, blah. Dame has to take way more difficult shots. He doesn't have, like, a screener like Draymond Green to just constantly get him open. And again, I'm not saying that he could ever shoot like Steph. Steph is an otherworldly shooter. But his percentages would definitely go up. Dame is better going to the rim than Steph. They're both very good. But Dame is more forceful going to the rim. And Dame is just as clutch as Steph is. I mean, he's ended playoff series. He's dragged teams to the playoffs on his own. Dame is a guy who raises the floor of a team way more than Steph does. Steph has struggled to carry a team when he didn't have multiple other really good players around him. Now that he's got Draymond back and with, you know, Andrew Wiggins actually looking halfway decent, um, 
you know, suddenly they're good. I'm not trying to call Andrew Wiggins good, but, you know, Draymond is an all-NBA player. Suddenly you've got two all-NBA players, you've got something going on. Give Dame one all-NBA player at any point, especially at the power forward position. And his career is just different. If you put, if you just take the 73-win Warriors that didn't win the title and put Dame in instead of Steph, that team might win. They just might. Maybe they lose. I don't know. But I think they still win their other titles. And you've got to be kidding me if you think that Kevin Durant doesn't affect, you know, the other titles that they won. So it's just, it, it, it is what it is. Like, the truth is the truth. Steph Curry is a better shooter and has had a better career. Fair. But he's also had an optimal situation with a better organization around him. A better coaching system, too. Whether or not you like Steve Kerr better than Terry Stotts, Golden State always has premium assistant coaches. So no matter how you look at this, Steph Curry has always been put in a position to succeed. And Dane Lillard has always been in a position to drag his team as far as he possibly could. And I just think there are many scenarios where if you swap those two, the outcomes would be very damn similar. That's what I think, and no one could ever make me disagree. And by the way, I bet you Dame fucking Lillard would agree with me too. Now, Dame would never say that he wanted to leave Portland, obviously. And I don't think that Dame would ever trash his teammates. But you certainly can't tell me that you think that, you know, the if you took Steph off the Warriors with, you know, the Kevin Durant Warriors, for example, that they wouldn't win. Of course, they still would. And I think they still would have won um, the other season they won as well in their first run before the, you know, the whole 73-9 and nine thing. So, I you know, I just... I believe that Steph and Dame are very similar players. It's just what I think. No one can convince me otherwise. So, it is what it is. That one has made a lot of people call me crazy or say I have horrible takes or whatever, but you know, just just because you can't understand the concept of team context. This is my favorite thing is like you talk about how good a player is or, you know, how good a win was. And it's like, oh, it's not one player. It's the whole team. And then when you're like, well, okay, considering team, what if we swap these players? They're like, are you crazy? Have you looked at the championships? What about rings? And it's just like, you can't win with anyone. You know, no matter what you do, you can't win. One interesting thing that I've been thinking about on the NBA front is that there is... um well, John Collins is a guy who should be being talked about on the trade front. But for the most part, everyone's talking about Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond. The Cavs basically said, hey, we're moving on from Andre Drummond. We're going to try to trade him. And if not, we'll probably buy him out. The Pistons basically said the same thing with Blake Griffin. We're going to try to trade him. They're probably both going to get bought out. There are possibilities of trades with both. You never know how things go. And it only takes one team in the NBA. But it's interesting to me that all the discussion centers around these two when like John Collins is there. And I know that John Collins isn't perfect. And I know that he's especially not perfect on defense, but like he is still a very young player who's very talented, who the right team could absolutely maximize. And I think sometimes even I am a, an absolute, I love defense. I love defense. I hate guys who don't play defense. I always say that. I understand that. But I also understand that there are some dudes that are so phenomenally skilled on offense that even if you can just teach them to play passable defense, that can be a game changer for you. And yes, that hasn't quite happened so far in Atlanta, but Atlanta has a whole mess of other problems. So I'm just surprised that other teams aren't looking at John Collins like, hey, we can get this guy at a discount on his value. 
um, you know, then we have his restricted rights and that could potentially allow us to maybe get him at a lower number if no other teams max him. And if someone else maxes him, it's fine with us. We'll just keep him. Like, I'm just surprised. I don't really know that he's going to get maxed. I think in this summer, he probably will just because of how little it just, it's how it always goes. You know, there's not a lot of guys. There is a lot of money. Guys are going to get overpaid. That's just sort of how it goes. And John Collins is a prime candidate for that. And so that's why some teams are hesitant to trade for him. I understand that. But simple fact of the matter is you got to pay money to someone. And you might as well pay money to a 20 and 10 guy who has the potential for major upside. Like, it's not like John Collins is anywhere near a bust. And I think that, you know, the, you know, the PD suspension and just some of, how things have kind of gone south in Atlanta with him and Trey Young not seeing eye to eye. Some of that stuff has made some of the shine come off the apple, I guess. But in my opinion, this is a dude that the team should really be looking at. I really think that, again, there's a lot of upside there. He's talented. And I really think that the right coach, the right team, the right system can get him playing, you know, passable, passable defensively. Like, I'm not saying that he's ever going to be a good defender. Like, I don't, I don't know that that's really even necessarily possible, but I just, you know that there's a difference between a guy who's like just an absolute nightmare on defense and a guy who's at least in position, getting his hands up, doing the right things. Maybe he still gives up buckets, but he's still doing the right things. And that does matter because doing the right things helps funnel guys the right way. It helps the team defense stay in place. And, you know, if you're contesting shots, you're making it more difficult. So anyone can really be taught to be a passable defender. And he's quick. He's athletic. I I, I still, I'm... I'm absolutely, if I'm on another team, I'm, I'm all over trying to buy low on this guy because I think there's phenomenal upside. I understand why the Hawks want to move on in terms of maybe the personalities don't fit. Maybe they don't love everything about him. Um, and you know, their, their decks are kind of, you know, they're, they got a lot of guys, you know, they want to clear the decks a little bit, you know, make the rotation a little more, you know, even, you know, I understand all that, but still, I think. I think it's a mistake. I think that Collins has a lot of talent and I am someone who would want to pick him up. So I went through the the trade machine because it's fun. Um, check out tradenba.com, by the way. If you use the ESPN trade machine, it sucks compared to trade NBA. So, you know, trade NBA, you can add picks. It has all the rules. It's so much more. It's way cooler. Tradenba.com. In any case, um, these are a few trades that I looked at for John Collins that that, that can happen. Uh, there's a little bit of one or two of them you have to like, uh, you can't trade them to like March 3rd. So there's some kind of, um, uh, you know, with like new contracts or whatever, there are certain restrictions, but um, that's fine. It's, you know, almost March 3rd. So, you know, that's a couple of weeks away. So you could agree to this trade and just make it happen then. Um, but here are the ones that I really like. The first one I really love is John Collins to the Celtics. Um, I know that. On the surface right now, it seems like the Celtics really need more like ball handling. But the truth of the matter is, if Kemba is able to regain any sense of his Kemba-ness, and when Marcus Smart comes back, they're going to be stronger in that sense. But their offense is still struggling, and I know that Collins is a defensive liability, but... <laughs> The Celtics have a lot of really good defenders, and they would find ways to hide John Collins, and he just would provide buckets. He just would. He would provide so many buckets inside and outside that they, they just don't have. And I just love the idea of Brown, Tatum, and Collins. Brown and Tatum can cover 
for a lot of what Collins would, you know, maybe fuck up here and there on the defensive end. I just, I really love it. I think it works. And, you know, there are trades that make sense. You could trade Collins and Solomon Hill for Romeo Lankford, Robert Williams, Time Lord, and uh, a 2021 first round pick, right? Um, you could, you know, if the if you somehow needed to, if if the Hawks hate both those players, you could also add a lottery protected first or something. Like I don't know exactly how the you know the Hawks and Celtics both grade Collins, but the simple fact of the matter is Collins is about to be a free agent, so he doesn't command a premium price, but he's restricted free agent, so you still control his rights. You just don't control how much his salary is going to be, but. You can control whether or not he's on your team next season if you acquire him. So the Hawks still know that when they're trading him. But on the flip side, as far as those picks go, they're not going to be very good. The Celtics are still going to be a good team in the playoffs. So those picks are always going to be in the 20s. And given that the Hawks already have a lot of picks, I don't know what value that has to them. Maybe you need to adjust. Maybe they like Neesmith better. You know, I'm sure there's some sort of you know, package that could be worked out because the Hawks are looking at losing Collins anyway. So if you're trading them a player on a rookie contract with an extra year or two of control and you're giving them a pick, you know, this could be worked out. You know, the the salaries and everything and the picks could be worked out. You know, maybe if the picks are too good, maybe the Hawks send back one of their, you know, other picks that they've got from, you know, various deals over the years. There's a lot of different possibilities that um, could be made. So... I do think, um, again, I really like this trade just in terms of I love the fit of Collins on the Celtics. I think that the Celtics have enough young assets and picks that, you know, the Hawks have some picks in the future. They've traded some of them away to acquire other guys. Um, so, again, I don't know how much they value the picks to kind of win all in this year. You've got to restock your roster behind your veterans you know i don't know what they feel about all that maybe they would prefer players but again they're kind of so deep already that's the reason they're getting collins so i don't know what bringing in two young guys is i don't know what that means for them right now so maybe they prefer a slightly more veteran player and you know down the road picks you know it's there's a whole lot of different possibilities here so you could work something out but the bottom line is for me I love the idea of Collins on the Celtics and there are multiple different packages that can be worked out. And I I just think it's something that makes sense because although I've said that Brad Stevens, isn't the greatest coach in the world. um, I do think that, you know, he's still a good coach and I do think that he can, I've basically said he's overrated. Um, You know, and by the way, I'm going to just go off on a tangent here for a second. This episode is rant city too. Anyway, I got into a debate on Twitter the other night with some fucking morons about how they said that basically NBA coaching doesn't matter. And this is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Does it matter when you have a super team featuring LeBron and Anthony Davis, how you coach that team exactly? Um, Yes, it still fucking matters. Rotations matter. The pieces around those players matter. How you play matters. And the simple fact of the matter is that if you don't even understand NBA coaching and what value it provides, then I don't really know what to say to you. Is it the same as college coaching? Of course not. In college, it's all about the coach. In the NBA, there are many people who could do your job, sure. But when you're trying to win a championship, only coaches at the highest level get the job done. These people actually tried to tell me that Dwayne Casey would have won the finals with the Raptors if he had Kawhi Leonard. 
The whole reason that Masai Jerry fired Dwayne Casey, and I'm not trying to knock Dwayne Casey here, but the whole reason that he fired him was because he continued to not make adjustments in the playoffs. So then he hired a guy, a Nick Nurse, who makes constant adjustments. Okay. Yes, Kawhi Leonard certainly helped. Absolutely. But you can't tell me that Nick Nurse had nothing to do with that. Someone actually tried to tell me that Danny Green meant more to that Raptors title run than Nick Nurse did. Danny Green shot fucking 34% in the playoffs. He had a PER of eight. And those numbers are like if I'm rounding up, okay? He wasn't good in the playoffs. He was terrible. His defense wasn't even that good either. His advanced defensive stats were bad. Kawhi Leonard, Marcus All, Norm Powell, Fred Van Vliet, and all-star, superstar, megastar Kyle Lowry won that finals for the Raptors. And by the way, another opinion I have that pisses people off is that Kyle Lowry is a superstar and a Hall of Famer. And the trade packages that I suggested for him, people hate me for that. In any case... Speaking of tangents, I was talking about John Collins at one point. And speaking of Raptors, I do think Collins and Celtics can work. I think that Brad Stevens can make it work. But someone who can definitely make it work is the aforementioned Nick Nurse. And I really like Collins to the to the Raptors. So I mentioned in the last episode some trade ideas for Kyle Lowry. But the Raptors are doing okay the last few games. And they almost seem more inclined to upgrade their team instead of downgrading their team. And so if you're going to keep Kyle Lowry and you're not going to trade him, then why not acquire a young player who's sort of on the outs with his team? There are, again, a lot of packages that work. You could trade Collins for Chris Boucher and a first-round pick. You know, Masai is probably not giving up two first-round picks for Collins in any scenario, but, I mean, Chris Boucher and a first-round pick, the salary works. If you want, I mean, again, you could do two lottery protected, pay, however you want to work it. Like there are different scenarios. Collins is young. I mean, Messiah barely gave up anything for Kawhi. Granted, he did give up DeMar DeRozan, um, but he, he, the Raptors can make this work. Chris Boucher uh, first in two seconds. I don't know. The point is that there are a lot of salary matches um, that work. Boucher is one of those guys who can't be traded till March 3rd. Um, you could, you know, if you wanted to do the trade just right now, you could do Stanley Johnson. Um, you know, the salaries, again, because John Collins is still not on an extended contract, he's still making that, he's still on that rookie deal. His deal is still cheap. So you still have the ability to acquire, acquire him on the cheap in terms of what salary you're sending out. And again, I know that I'm talking about, you know, potentially giving up picks. But again, we're talking about teams giving up picks in the 20s to acquire a guy that we know can score 20 points. I know that you have to pay him, but I just I think that this is one of those scenarios where we're thinking too hard. John Collins is a good player who is, you know, almost an all star who is young and still has plenty of upside and in the right team, in the right system, especially the Raptors. The Raptors have made so many guys who are bad defenders into good defenders. And I know that John Collins would frustrate the hell out of Nick Nurse at first. But you're trying to tell me with Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam and those guys all around. Pascal Siakam, by the way, the other guy who helped the Raptors win. I knew I was forgetting someone. Someone out there was like, you forgot Siakam. In any case, um. There are just a lot of scenarios where the Raptors would be a lot better if they had a guy like John Collins. And I know he's not what they need necessarily in defense, but the Raptors have a lot of good defensive players. They need more help on offense. And I just really think this would work, and I think they would be smart for it. Um, There are just a lot of teams that you can honestly make John Collins trades for because his number is so low. You know, for example, the Hornets. You could, they've been wanting a big man. Let's say that they love the idea of pairing LaMelo and Collins. I think that's interesting. 
you could trade anyone of Monk, uh, Malik Monk, uh, Miles Bridges, or PJ Washington and a pick. And any one of those three, it, it's done right there for Collins. Um, and again, shit, I mean, if you're maybe you take a hard line and, you know, PJ, just PJ Washington for Collins, no pick. I mean, I, you know, because he's on a rookie deal, he's got team control. You know, I, I don't know. There are, it's just if the Hornets want a big who can score, Collins is available right there. And again, the terms of the trade will simply be negotiated by, you know, it's just how it goes, right? It gets worked out, but those those contract numbers all work, and I just think it would be an upgrade for the Hornets to have yet another guy who could score, but this time consistently score inside. I mean, Lamelo and Collins, come on, that's a really interesting pick and roll. The Spurs, they have so many guards. Um, you know, there's so many different guys in the backcourt. They need to unclog some of that. And Lamarcus Aldridge has been bad. And I know that Pop, again, defensive guy, but, I mean, Devin Vassell in a pick. You know, I mean, again, there are just so many uh, trades you can make. The Blazers, again, they probably need more defense than they do offense, but you could trade Zach Collins if you wanted to. Um, you know, again, you know, or Zach Collins in a pick. Again, there are deals that can be made. How people view John Collins um, may be worse than how I view him. I don't know. I still think he's a really good player. I think that he provides a lot of upside. And I think it's hard to get players who are young, who have upside, and who potentially might come at a contract discount because they, you know, have maybe suffered some chemistry issues with their team. And it's not even necessarily his fault. Other people maybe don't love Trey Young, too. Now, again, you might say, well, we don't want to necessarily have to pay him the, you know, the small max because someone, else, you know, maybe they will. But this is just, you typically aren't able to acquire guys like this. You're not able to acquire 23, 24 year olds who are on the upswing, who, um, you know, are heading into their second contract. You're basically never able to acquire those guys. You're not able to really ever get the restricted free agents. It rarely happens. So this is a move that some team needs to make. And one move I kind of really like, and I know that this would never happen. Um, so I'm not like, it's just, it's fun. And again, this would never occur, but you could trade Al Horford and Mike Muscala and a couple of picks. I mean, the Thunder have all the picks in the world. So why not find one that you don't care about and deal it? And it would be for John Collins, uh, Rajon Rondo and Tony Snell. Obviously you just buy out Rondo if you're the Thunder at that point, uh, or you, you know, find a way to flip him to the Lakers. Maybe there's, you know, maybe they'll, you know, I don't know. Um, but I love this because you can put Horford behind Clint Compella, or you can play them together for a few minutes here and there. But if you put him behind Compella, now you've got rock solid center play 48 minutes a game. I know you're paying way too much money to Horford for that, but it just, that's the name of the game. It is what it is at this point. You've already got so many guys anyway. And then I love the idea of SGA and Dort playing with John Collins. Now, the funny thing is that the Thunder don't want to be better right now. So again, they'll never do this because number one, the Thunder aren't giving up picks at any point. They're only acquiring picks and they're certainly not going to give them to acquire a guy who makes them better now when they're trying to lose but the thing is I just love the idea of SGA Dort and John Collins like making a run at the play-in game because the Thunder are just a little bit better than expected that stuff is fun and again I know that the Hawks aren't going to pay that money to Al Horford to be a backup center and I know that the Thunder aren't giving up I know all these things but that trade would be really fun 
because it would give the Thunder three young guys. Then they just have all these other picks to take all the shots they want. You win or you lose, it doesn't matter. And then again for the Hawks, you've got rock solid center play 48 minutes a game. Trey Young has got multiple, you know, he's got a good pick and roll partner. He's got a good pick and pop partner there. Uh, you know, it opens up more and more minutes for like, you know, Galnar and everything. It just, it works out. So um, it won't happen. But in any case, um, it would be really, really fun if it did. Uh, it's, it, that's a, that's one that I love, but we'll see what happens with Collins. I think he will be traded. I don't see why. Um, I suppose the, the Hawks could let it go and he could leave in a sign and trade scenario. Um, but the simple fact of the number that his contract number is so low and you can acquire him right now for, you know, a playoff run without having to give up that much in salary, even if you have to give up picks. I mean, I just, you know, we're overvaluing picks, especially in the twenties. I mean, yeah, sometimes you find a guy, sometimes you develop them, but this guy can already score 20 points and he's in his early twenties to mid 20. Like, it just, it's, you can't acquire guys like that. I, I, I'm imploring someone to do it, but we'll see how it goes. Some interesting things I've seen in the last few days. Oh, hell. Let's just go into it right now. (sighs) What Phoenix did last night against the Nets was so fucking unacceptable, I can't even begin to explain how angry I was. They led the game by like 25 and ended up losing by four. KD and Kyrie were out. And it was just Harden, and Harden played a great game, and he came in and closed it out and just took it away from us. And it's just so incredibly frustrating to watch this shit again, because I came in here set and prepared to talk about how the Suns had finally learned to close games. And the league had better watch out, because they're finally contenders, and if you aren't paying attention, you should be. And if you don't know now, you know, and I'm saying all this shit on Twitter, talking all this shit. And then, of course, of course. The lead starts slipping and the lead starts slipping. I also bet on DeAndre Ayton to have over 27.5 points and rebounds in this game. I, I feel like it's my fault. I do myself. Uh, you know, I'm like, well, it's going to be a close game and Ayton will be getting points and rebounds. And then the Suns are blowing him out. And I'm like, man, I wonder if Ayton's not even going to get there because he's going to get pulled before too early because we're just going to blow the nets out. And then that thought is just like the worst thought I could have had because then not only do, do the nets come all the way back, but Ayton stays on the court and still doesn't get the over that I bet on because the Suns won't throw the ball to him. So it's just like I jinx my own team by betting on them and making a stupid choice. It's just... I, it, it's it's just an awful, frustrating game, and I'm looking right at Monty Williams. I mean, there were a lot of dudes that needed to be looked at in that game. Devin Booker, Chris Paul, everyone had their share of mistakes. You know, even Mikhail Bridges after the game said he gave up a few threes. Like, everyone needed to look themselves in the mirror, but I'm looking at Monty because his rotations are bad. Kaminsky had been in the starting lineup. We won like five, six game in a row. We won like nine of 10. So suddenly in this game, he starts Crowder over Kaminsky and he doesn't even play Kaminsky. He plays Saric. Like, what the hell are you doing? His rotations are so bizarre. Guys go from starting to completely out of the rotation. There's no explanation. There's no why. Suddenly you're starting again. Suddenly you're on the bench. It just, it makes no damn sense. And why do you go away from a lineup that's working? Did something happen? Did he punch another teammate? Did he just skip a bunch of practices? Like, what the hell? I just, it makes no damn sense. And I'm just tired of, I'm tired of his rotations. I've been saying it since he came here. It is the one thing that frustrates me about him most of all. Abdel Nader is playing all the time for some games. Then all of a sudden he's not in the lineup at all. Langston Galloway's in and out of the line. It just, 
if this is one of those things where, well, we have 15 guys, we have too many people, so on some nights some guys are going to play, it's sit some guys. Tell some people you're going to be sitting for a while. We need some consistency because the inconsistency is killing us. And this whole, well, we're trying to figure out what works and we're trying to mix lineups. If you eventually get to the playoffs, not having consistent lineups is going to fucking kill you. Not having guys who know how to play together at this point is going to fucking kill you. And given that the starting lineup continues to have problems, why are you changing it when it started working? The majority of this season, the bench unit has actually been the better unit for the Suns. And sure, a lot of the times they're playing against the bench unit. I understand and know that, but it should still never be the case that your bench is better than your starters. And that is what has been the case for the Suns. And then they finally started to find a lineup that was working and they benched it for some reason. Like, do you understand what it takes for me to sit here and beg the Suns to play Frank Kaminsky? Like, I hate Frank Kaminsky, okay? I'm a University of Arizona fan. I watched him destroy this team multiple years in a row in, you know, the the conference, the NCAA tournament. I've watched Frank Kaminsky ruin my dreams, okay? So I hate this man. But there is simply no arguing that he fits this system very well and especially against a team like the Nets, Monty says after the game, well, we wanted to punish them with our size. Then why the fuck didn't Kaminsky play? Why is Jay Crowder playing? How the fuck does that make any sense? And not only that, but DeAndre Ayton barely touched the ball down the stretch, and you could tell he was visibly tired of it at one point. He was exhausted, too. The Suns kept switching him onto Harden. Dude, I don't care if he can guard Giannis. Giannis can't shoot. He can't guard Harden, man. You can't. He sticks to Harden. Harden goes right by him. He can guard Giannis because Giannis can't shoot. Okay, he cannot guard Harden. It's just the, it was, the defense last night was bizarre. They're not giving the ball to Aiton on offense at all. There were multiple scenarios. Now, the Nets were doubling Aiton. I understand that. The Nets were doubling Aiton with smaller players trying to keep the ball out of his hands. But there were a lot of scenarios in which one of the Nets players would abandon the double and they would leave DeAndre Aiton with a single defender on him. Throw him the fucking ball. And I understand that he's still inconsistent. He doesn't have the best hands. People will, out of one corner of their mouth, beg DeAndre Ayton to take more shots and beg him to be more aggressive. And then out of the other corner of their mouth, say it's his fault for not being passed to. Like, the man can't score more points if he's not getting the bucket. And I know that his seals aren't perfect. I know his rolls aren't perfect. But there were so many scenarios in this game where... He was literally one-on-one with the guard, and no one is throwing him the ball. In fact, on we were up at the end of the game, up by uh, one point, I think. Chris Paul is driving, and he's got Aiton alone in the lane. And instead of throwing it to Aiton, while he's in midair, he throws the ball to Mikhail Bridges in the corner, who bricks a triple. Like, Aiton's literally right next to the fucking bucket, and Chris Paul chose to throw it to the corner instead because for some reason he didn't trust that Aiton could dunk over a guard. And I know that this wasn't his most phenomenal game. I know that DeAndre, again, I'm not trying to defend how DeAndre played in this game. He also played terribly. But I just, I don't know what to do when you've got a fucking seven-foot center standing there next to a 6'2 guy and you won't throw him the ball. And I don't know what to do when you tell me that you are taking seriously your commitment to playing bigger than the Nets and you don't play the guy who's helped you win the last few games. They didn't really play Saric and Aiton together. They didn't play Kaminsky at all. And I understand the two bigs lineup doesn't work a lot all the time in this league, but it would have worked in this game against a team that wasn't even necessarily shooting that well for the whole game until the second half, really. In the second half, honestly, they were they were still getting open shots anyway. So this idea that like, oh, well, they would have gotten open shots against the two big lineup, like 
I mean, truth be told, they were they were honestly shooting pretty well the whole game. I mean, they still scored in the fifties in the first half. We scored seventy five, so it it seems like they weren't playing that well on offense. That's not true. I shouldn't even say they weren't shooting well. They were shooting pretty well, but they were getting open shots anyway, despite the fact that we were supposedly playing our quicker lineup that's able to switch and rotate and blah blah blah. So it just, I hate this game. I hate the way that Monty coached it. I hate the way that everyone played down the stretch. I hate everything about this game. It's one of the worst games I've seen in forever for the Suns. It's one of those games that you just have to. I mean, you need to watch. This is this, and as far as the coaching thing goes, by the way, this is a masterclass on why coaching matters. This game was a perfect example of why coaching matters because the Nets have a billion minds on that coaching staff, and they were getting their ass kicked in the first half. And instead of letting that be like what occurred, and instead of just you know letting the game play itself out they adjusted the hell out of everything they took away everything the suns wanted to do and they just showed what having a ton of coaching Monty just got his ass kicked in this game i don't really know how else to describe it it just is what it is and this again i'm not trying to i still love monty williams i still want him to be here but he's got to work on the rotation stuff i don't think you should be pulling guys starters suddenly benching them it makes no sense you shouldn't be benching starters who have helped lead to a, a several game winning streak it's not how you do it you need to tell guys they're going to sit for a few games and then rotate you know it just I don't like the way that he's doing the lineups. I don't really know what else to say about that. And it frustrates me to no end. It has continued to do so. Um, if you try to do this shit in the playoffs, you're just going to get worked. So the Suns need to settle on a consistent starting five. They need to go with it. And Kaminsky needs to be part of what's going on right now. Because the simple fact of the matter is, is that when Frank Kaminsky is playing right now, the Suns are playing well. When he is on the court and when he is part of the rotation, the Suns are playing well. The simple fact of the matter is that despite his limitations athletically, he is a, a smart passer. He is a decent shooter. He's solid inside. He's just a reliable, you know, glue player. He's never going to be a star. He's never going to be an all-star. He's maybe not even necessarily a starter level player, but he is someone who simply comes in and just makes all the glue plays that help. You know, the 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 idea that he was ever going to be a star in this league was, you know, it was dumb. But he can pass the ball, he can shoot, he can rebound, he can play a little defense, he can do just a little bit of everything. Okay? He's an extremely poor man's Draymond Green. Extremely, extremely poor, except he can shoot better than Draymond. So, can't defend anywhere near Draymond. I'm just saying he can be... You can run plays through him. You can do a lot of stuff. He's just a he's a Swiss Army knife, and he's a nice glue player. Whether he's starting or coming off the bench, he should be part of what the Suns are doing. And it's frustrating to me to watch guys be a part of what we're doing, have them have great success, and then they're suddenly sitting. And if there's a reason for it, fine. But it cost us the game last night. And when you're in the business of costing yourself games because you want to prove a point, I don't really know what to say. Bill Belichick did that stuff with Malcolm Butler in the Eagles Super Bowl. Jeff Hornacek used to do it all the time when he was Sun Coach. Whenever the whenever the Morris Twins would do something he didn't like, he would fucking bench them. And he would cost the Suns games at times because he would bench someone for doing something he didn't want. And he just didn't care because he wanted to prove a point. And it just... It's not all about you improving your point. And... You know, the good teams recognize that, and the Suns need to get to a point where they are a good team. They're still 17-10. and 10. Things are still generally going well, and, you know, the season has been successful thus far, but 
if you want to be taken seriously, you know, when guys ask why we're not getting all-star votes, it's because you blow games like this on national television. If you want to be taken seriously as a franchise, you can't lose games like this. You can't lose to the Nets B squad, C squad, really. You just, you can't do this. And they need to take this game as the kick in the ass that it was. They need to wake up and they need to go on a win streak. Now, I said I really wanted them to be 20 and 10. That is still very well, obviously, within the range of possibility. Let's win the next three games. Let's keep this thing going. Let's keep up that 55-win pace in an 82-game season. Those things will make people take this team seriously. And you just got to throw this game out, look at the film, understand it, and then just forget about it and not make those mistakes again. I know it's weird to say forget it and then remember it and not make those mistakes again. But, you know, when you're competing, you know what I mean. You forget the losses, you remember the lesson. It just is what it is. And finally, I've just been watching... You know, just watching a lot of different games and, you know, the cool thing about League Pass, obviously, is obviously not only the games you can watch, but, you know, the ones you can go back and watch and do research on. And, you know, there's just so much interesting stuff going on this season. You know, the I think a lot of us thought that the pandemic was going to, you know, ruin the season and make it, you know, unbearable and, you know, everyone would be missing half their team the whole time. And some cases that has been true, but, you know, it's still really been a good season. Um, obviously, I'm, you know, in high spirits because of, you know, I'm notwithstanding last night, but the Suns have had a good year. And so that makes me happy. Um, and certainly some teams are underperforming, but there's a lot of interesting stuff going on right now. Um, like one thing I'm really loving is I know that it started last year, but I'm still loving Mello's like turn back the clock games. And I know that Mello is still imperfect as a player, but as like a bench scorer, as you know, a fourth or fifth option, whatever. I mean, it, I, I still enjoy watching Mello play and he still has the ability. He did it against the 76ers. He took over, won the game late. He still has that ability every now and then to just act as a closer. And, you know, he's not perfect on defense, but, you know, I mean, when you're getting a bucket every time down the court, you know, it's fine. And it's just fun to watch him have those nights where he gets it back and, you know, comes to that level. And, you know, I'm glad for him that he his career should never have ended on like a he was just bounced out of the league sort of note. Like, and there was real danger of that occurring. And the fact that he has you know, finally taking on, you know, being just sort of a role player and, you know, those things. I know that he's, you know, he, you know, he's in and out of the starting lineup and everything for the Blazers, but I just mean like the fact that he has, you know, you're a role player no matter what at this point. And, you know, he's not trying to get 20 shots a game and, you know, he's doing mellow things when he gets those opportunities, but it's just cool to see him, you know, turn the clock back and, um, have those moments and, you know, end his career the right way. Like, you know, he got to play LeBron in the playoffs last year, even though it wasn't like, you know, obviously the Lakers went right through him. It's just, those things are still very cool. And for sentimental reasons, there've been a lot of dudes who actually kind of ended their career with the Blazers. They're almost like the Suns in that way. And it's just cool to see that every now and then. And that 76ers game, you know, last week or whatever, that was fun. Just the thing I was thinking about. One other thing that's interesting, especially when you consider the contract, is it possible that Jalen Brown is actually more valuable than Jason Tatum right now? Now, I'm not saying necessarily better player, but I'm saying more valuable because Jalen Brown's contract is significantly cheaper than Jason Tatum. You know, I mean, Jalen Brown is sub max and Tatum, uh, you know, 
on the Supermax, like, I'm not trying to say that I think this is necessarily true, but with the way that Jalen Brown is playing right now, I mean, he's basically playing as well as Tatum or close to it as a two-way player. Like, they're having almost the same impact, basically. And he's on, you know, a contract guaranteeing less money per year. And, I mean, Tatum's contract is longer. um, And he probably still has more upside. I just think it's interesting that, like, if you went to trade them right now, man, you would get a lot for both of them, obviously, if you went to trade either one. But, I mean, Jalen Brown's contract is so... So many teams could fit it in. I, I just... It's... I mean, that contract is a steal. It's pretty amazing. Um, and it's just, it's it's interesting to me. Again, I'm not saying that, that Jason Tatum is, or I'm not saying that Jalen Brown is a better player than Jason Tatum or has better long-term upside. I just, you know, Bill Simmons used to do that annual NBA trade value column where he would, you know, consider contracts and age and all these things and consider trade value. And I think that it's one of those things that most people would consider, like, on its face coming into this season, the idea of discussing the trade value of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum being anywhere near each other would have been insane. But right now, I'm not sure that's the case anymore. I just think that's interesting. And, and maybe by the end of the season, it will revert back to exactly what it was. But I do think it's interesting that Jalen Brown is having an equitable impact on a cheaper contract and continuing to trend upward when Jason Tatum is stagnating a little bit. I mean, Tatum has games where you're like, wow. And then he has games where you're like, hmm. So I just, you know, it's just interesting. It's just an interesting, interesting season. Again, this has been a fun year. And and I'm sure that Celtics fans would disagree with me. But, you know, I I just think it's interesting. It's not as crazy as it would have been coming into the season. I think that's worthy of noting. Now, if they were on the same contract, then, uh, you know, then I think the value is. But I, I just think that when you consider, you know, Several million dollars less per season. I just think it's interesting. As far as the Griffin and Drummond things go, again, I think that they're probably just going to both be bought out. I'm kind of surprised that Cleveland doesn't want to, you know, keep playing Drummond behind Allen, even if they're going to make Allen their center of the future. Like, Drummond's a good player. He was fitting in well. Um, but from what I understand, reading um, in, uh, I'm forgetting, it was in a Cleveland newspaper. I'm forgetting. I apologize who it was. I'm trying to attribute, but off the top of my head, I can't remember. But um, it was, you know, there have been reports out of Cleveland, essentially, that, uh, you know, Andre Drummond was really unhappy after that Jared Allen trade. And so, um, you know, that essentially means that you know they just they feel the need to to just move on and i really think you know he's another guy who if you know if drummond gets bought out you know the nets you know i think the nets will be waiting with open arms you know the celtics will be waiting you know the raptors will be waiting you know he would have his choice of teams uh i don't know what the money would be like i don't know if the celtics would dip into their like exceptions or anything um you know but i think you know drummond is a guy who if he gets bought out he's going to have a lot of suitors it doesn't really matter if he gets in terms of money like you know you that money would just I'm fairly certain if he gets bought out this year, any money that he would make would just come away from um, the money that he was owed by Cleveland. I don't, I don't know that he could really double dip like that. I I don't know exactly how it works. It it sort of depends, but in any case, um, it would really be the role for a contender. And, you know, I think, starting for the Nets, you know, and giving them a defensive presence would probably be something that would really appeal to him. And I think that that's on a lot of people's minds is the idea of Drummond going to the Nets. With Griffin, um, 
with longer left on the deal, it's complicated. You know how that works out. I don't know. That may be a scenario where he has to sit to the off season and then some season, some team just trades for him because, you know, from their perspective, they have him on the books for a shorter period. That's possible. Um, you know, it's tough. It's sad to see this happen to Blake Griffin. He was once such a good player, a guy who was at one point like the third best player in the league for a year or two there. Um, he was a really phenomenal offensive player, a guy who basically played point forward, you know, at times averaging like 25, 10, and 7. I mean, Blake Griffin was a really good player and, um, you know, an all-NBA player. And it's too bad that injuries have just taken away from, you know, he wasn't, you know, he started his career as a super athlete, but he, you know, lost that athleticism a little bit and was still an all NBA player. And so it wasn't like his career had to go this way where he was just going to become, you know, not effective. But that is simply where we are at this point. And it sucks. And I don't know if there's anything that can really be done. And, you know, he's another guy who maybe if he gets bought out and goes to a contender, maybe like Nick Batum, suddenly you see a spring in his step. I don't know. You know, maybe that could happen. Um, you know, with Drummond, I mean, he was still playing decently this season. I mean, it wasn't perfect. He's a weird player, but he was still, you know, the Cavs were winning. I mean, they were playing well. Now they're losing. So, I mean, you know, say which will, but he was he was helping them. Um, he really was. And, um, you know, I, I, I definitely think he would help the Nets. As far as Blake Griffin goes, I don't know. I don't know who he helps, if he helps anyone at this point. I, mean, I just honestly, like, again, I'm not trying to be a dick. I just there's a certain point where you're not capable of being an impactful player, especially in this league where there's so much running and so much, you got to chase back out to the perimeter to get your guy. And there's just so many super athletes. It's just kind of hard to be the former super athlete who doesn't have it anymore. And again, maybe this is a scenario. If he's simply not healthy, he needs to rest. Maybe he's got a little bit left as a role player and a contender. I don't know, but it, it certainly sucks to see him go that way. Um, the Hornets, everyone is raving about LaMelo, as they should. Now, that's LaMelo Ball, not Mellow. That's one other thing I want to clarify. Mello is Carmelo fucking Anthony, okay? Mello is Carmelo Anthony. Mello is not LaMelo Ball. He's LaMelo, okay? Let's get that clear. I see what people love about LaMelo. Some of these passes he throws are awesome. He tries on defense. He grabs some boards. He just does a little bit of everything. I see it. I still think that the shot is going to become a problem. I still think that defenders are going to close out on him in the playoffs, and I think it's going to be really hard for him to get that shot off, and I think it's going to matter. He can be fixed. You can fix those mechanics, and you can get that shot up, and you need to. It's one of those things where LaMelo Ball is young enough to fix his mechanics to make him a much more serviceable shooter. I know that he's been a decent shooter this year, but it's not neat. His mechanics are not going to last, especially as people learn more and more how to defend him and learn the book on how to defend him. His percentages will come down. It just, it's hard to shoot with really poor mechanics. And especially in the playoffs, when they put bigger defenders on him as he gets better and better and he has to shoot over guys, he's not able to do that. And those things are going to matter. Now, again, this is a rookie. So, this is great that this is like his biggest problem right now. This is a phenomenal problem to have. This is, you know, you want this to be your biggest problem. Not that you want your guy to have poor shooting mechanics, but it's way better than a guy who's so lost on defense he can't be on the court or a guy who has no passing vision or a guy who simply can't shoot. LaMelo Ball can shoot, but he needs better mechanics to shoot well at the highest level. You know, that's just true. And, you know, I think that 
I think the Hornets probably understand that, and I think that over time they'll be able to work on him. I mean, Lonzo has certainly worked on his mechanics, and that's not to say that Lonzo and LaMelo are the same person, but, you know, for people who come into the league with bad form, there's this sort of assumption that, you know, oh, well, they'll just never shoot because some guys never can, but a lot of people learn. You know, maybe Michael Kidd-Gilchrist never could, maybe Michael Carter-Williams never could, but other people have been able to learn to shoot, so... um it's going to matter, though. It, to win at the highest levels for him, to run an offense as a point guard, you have got to be able to shoot the three at a high level. And he's decent right now, but the mechanics have got to be fixed for him to be able to shoot when the defense is keyed to him, because that will change things. As far as the Wolves go, um, you know, pretty much everyone at this point is saying they should have drafted LaMelo instead of Anthony Edwards. And I understand you know, where people are coming from on that front. But you can see you can see it with Anthony Edwards. The problem is just the Wolves. Like, what do, what do we make of this organization? I really don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, you know, Jimmy Butler really took every everyone in that organization to task, and they've, you know, hired new front office and coaching staff since then, and, you know, they've made trades. But, you know, the simple fact of the matter is that the Wolves organization still seems sort of lift, listless and off track and – you know, everything going on with Carl Anthony Towns does not help at all, obviously. And, you know, I feel for Carl Anthony Towns so much. But that doesn't stop you from developing your other players. And, you know, you look at, you know, Jarrett Culver, who has not become much. And, you know, we see Anthony Edwards, who, you know, the, the problem with him was night-to-night consistency. And now he's gotten to the NBA, and that hasn't changed at all. And he's still so young. There's still plenty of time. And I'm not saying that he can't get there. But, you know... It's certainly true at this point that LaMelo Ball was a much more NBA-ready prospect than Anthony Edwards, and I think that that has become very clear. And, you know, the Wolves probably could have used more of that life than what they're getting from Anthony Edwards right now. Not that anything could fix all the pains that ail them, but I just, you know, I... The Wolves don't have a great track record right now. track record right now. They're not winning anything. They can't figure it out at all, and... It's just, it's tough. Now, on the flip side of that, Jordan McLaughlin looks awesome. His jumper looks so good. I love his stroke. Um, you know, he looks like someone who really could be good for them long term. Um, and so, you know, I mean, he's someone who's way more NBA ready than expected. So, I mean, um, I don't know how much, you know, how much can they develop him? You know, maybe he'll be a successful story where they failed otherwise. And there's plenty of opportunities for Anthony Edwards to still be a success story. I'm not trying to call him a bust or anything like that. I am just simply saying that in an organization where they are not doing a great job of developing guys, drafting a guy who has motor problems and has consistency problems, that's going to be a tough organization to fix that. Drafting a guy who's NBA ready and who just needs to fix a few things and can lift up everyone else around him, that probably would have been the smarter thing to do. And I'm not trying to sit here and say I was all over that on the draft. I've never been a huge LaMelo Ball guy. Um, but I, you know, at this point, it, I feel like I've been proven wrong in terms of how good LaMelo is. I still think I'm right that he's got to have the jump shot to be good at the highest level, but he's certainly not going to be anything like Lonzo, you know, and that's kind of what I thought he might be. And now he's going to be much, much better than that. So, you know, I mean, I, I was definitely wrong there, but you know, as far as the wolves go, it does seem, um, you know, it seems like maybe they blew that pick. Um, 
There's still time for Anthony Edwards to be the better player. Obviously, his jump shot is way better. You know, he's an explosive athlete. There's a lot to love about Anthony Edwards, and it's still possible that he becomes the better player long term. But if that's the case, then the Wolves would have become a much better organization than they are today. And that's, you know, a lot needs to be said for that. Um, The Pistons. You know, we hammered them for a lot of their moves. No one's ever going to be able to convince me that the Mason Plumlee signing was anything other than a favor to Mark Bartlestein. Mark Bartlestein, as Jared Dudley says, is the best agent in the business. Anyone can negotiate a max contract, but only Mark Bartlestein can get any mid-tier free agent paid way above his uh, his pay grade. And he continues to do that, and that's what the Mason Plumlee contract was. It was a favor to Mark, so that one day Mark will do a favor to the Pistons and steer a client towards them. But in any case... The other moves that they made, which were also criticized, have really honestly looked pretty good. Jeremy Grant, I mean, they're not winning, but he's still scoring at a super highly efficient level. You know, who knows if he'll ever be able to replicate this season or these numbers, but Jeremy Grant's having a great season, and he's certainly outplaying his contract, so there's no way to call that a bad signing. Um, Sadiq Bay, you know, I mean, the the Pistons were roundly criticized for giving up Kennard and four second-round picks and all these things and, and getting Bay, but... I mean, truth is, let's look at this. Like, guys from Villanova can play, and guys who spent at least two years in Villanova can really fucking play. And this is just another one. Um, you know, I mean, we still got a long way to go for him. There's a lot of development there. But anytime I watch the Pistons, Sadiq Bay stands out to me. I'm like, that dude's a fucking player. You can just tell when guys are players in this league. And Sadiq Bay is a player. He's yet another guy out of the Villanova system who understands how to play, shout Mikhail Bridges. And it's just one of those things that... You know, it's impressive. It is impressive what, you know, Jay Wright built and what the program continues to churn out each and every year. And, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of really damn good Villanova players. And, you know, they continue to have, I mean, talk about early impact. Like, Mikhail Bridges was good early. Uh, you know, Sadiq Bey is having an impact as a rookie. These guys are coming into the league ready. So if you're looking for someone to fill in the gaps on your team and play basketball the right way, I mean, look at a second or third year guy out of Villanova. Seriously. Especially if they've got the right measurements. Mikhail is Mikhail's going to be a star. The Pacers, it's really interesting. It's hard to know what's going on with the Pacers right now. They're struggling. You know, they win a couple games here and there. They've been in a losing streak. I mean, the obvious... The obvious is 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 kind of the answer, I think. You lose Victor Oladipo. Karis Levert has, you know, turns out he has a, a cancer. Um, they were able to remove it successfully. What a crazy thing to occur. But thank God he was, you know, okay. Um, but, you know, he's hurt. TJ Warren's hurt. And obviously, you know, Karis Levert get healthy. That's way bigger than basketball. But nonetheless, they were expecting to have, to have Karis Levert on the team. They were expecting to have TJ Warren on the team. Those things aren't happening. And, you know... You're down two impact players at this point, whether you look at it as Oladipo and Warren or Levert and Warren, they're down two guys that they expected to be in their rotation. Now, we didn't know coming into the season what we would get for Oladipo, but he's gotten a lot better. And, you know, he certainly, you know, knew how to play in the system and um, he's a good player. He opened things up for them and he had a few games where he looked like himself. So before he was traded to the Rockets. So anytime you lose impact starters, um, you know, you're going to see a downturn or you're going to see, you know, your team struggle a little bit. And I don't think that there's any shock to that. And I do think that, you know, for the Pacers, as far as the idea of making any moves, I mean, you know, Miles Turner has been playing at a high level this year. 
Sabonis has been, you know, playing well, but struggling a little lately. Brogdon has been off the charts this year. He's been, you know, playing his career best probably. I mean, I think the biggest thing you can do is just wait, get your guys back. You know, I don't think there are any more moves that need to be made. I think that, you know, they have enough potential internal growth to get from, you know, guys getting healthy basically that, you know, could carry them towards the playoffs. And I just don't think there's another move that that really needs to be made at this point. And, you know, it's hard to to know what you'll get from Karis LeVert really, obviously, but TJ Warren coming back would increase the flow of everything. And I mean, truthfully, um, you know, given what they're getting in addition to Jeremy Lamb and given the fact that, uh, you know, Oladipo was never really himself last season, getting TJ Warren back almost brings them back to kind of what they were last season when they were punching above their weight a little bit. So I do think that, you know, there's a strong possibility that the Pacers can still have, you know, a solid season here, even if they're, stumbling a little bit right now the magic on the other hand no real possibility for a future this season but i do want to say the fact that they continue to compete in games that they have no business competing in i mean how good of a coach is steve clifford i mean he he is he is underrated they've like been in games where they don't even like have guards and he's just like constructing these absurd lines. And it just, I wonder what Steve Clifford could do with like a really, really good roster because he's continued to produce teams that, you know, the output is, you know, more than, you know, the talent. And I just, I'm really interested to see what would happen if any, you know, really great team ever hired him or if the magic ever really assembled a truly great roster. It just, it would be really something really interesting to see. Um, few other notes. One other thing on the Suns, something interesting. DeAndre Ayton hit another three last night. I like that he's shooting threes now. I don't ever want to be, I don't want him shooting four or five threes a game or anything like that, but it's good that he can because if people are just going to leave him alone at the top of the arc and he's able to square up and hit, I mean, if you're going to add a couple of points a game here and there because you're able to just hit an open triple, you should be able to make an open triple. Anyone should be able to do so. And when you get to the point that they can't just leave you open, you know, it opens up, you know, so many avenues. And it's again, it's not like I'm trying to get him. We're, you know, we're not trying to turn DeAndre Ayton into a high volume, 40% three point shooter or something like that. It's just, we want to make sure that when they see Ayton open, you know, Hey, he's good enough that they're not going to sit there and just let him shoot. Cause if he's going to shoot 30%, then he should never take them. But if he's able to make them, then, you know, it stretches the defense just that much more. And maybe they'll never go chase him and, Maybe he'll make someone pay. Who knows? We'll see. But it's just an interesting little wrinkle if you have the ability to stretch out to that distance, even if it's not necessarily ideal for him to do it all the time. It's always good to be able to do something, even if it's not your primary skill. The Bucks kind of look middling, but as I said before, I think it applies both ways. I said before, no matter how well the Bucks play in the regular season, it won't matter until the playoffs. And I'm going to say that same thing about losing. I don't think these losses in the regular season matter. Like they lost to the Raptors and, you know, Raptors fans are just dunking all over them because of the finals a couple years ago and, you know, the Eastern Conference finals and knocking them out and everything. And, you know, that's fair. You know, they have the right to talk that trash and everything. And that's, you know, more power to them. But the thing is, is that I don't, we're just not going to get the best of the Bucks until the playoffs. They're just, I'm not judging anything the Bucks do this regular season. I don't care how many games they win, whether it's a lot or a little, it simply doesn't matter to me until we see them do something in the playoffs 
whether it is choke again or have success. I just don't, I'm not judging this team by anything except the playoffs because it's just, it's, it's, it's fool's gold either way. Because if we're going to sit here and say that their last couple years where they were bombing everyone out of the gym every night was fool's gold, then I'm going to go ahead and sit here and say that this middling team that's missing all their shots in, you know, not playing good defense because they look uninspired is also, it's defensive, you know, it's, it's loser fool's gold. Like I'm not selling short on them. It, you know, they're just, they're just middling. They are what they are right now. They don't care. They want to get back to the playoffs. And so I just don't think a lot of anything that's going on with the Bucks right now. Um, yeah, I'm not judging them by anything until we see the playoffs. Now, if they do this in the playoffs, then I've got plenty to say. Um, on that note, speaking of which, I think Chris Vernon said the Jazz have been like 19-1 and against the spread over their last 20 games or something. So keep that in mind if you're a gambler. The Jazz are apparently very good against the spread right now. Just something to to think about. And I, I, I made that connection in my mind just because I uh, thought the Bucks would beat the Jazz the other night, and they did not. As everyone is talking about right now, Ben Simmons, a candidate for Defensive Player of the Year, Joel Embiid, a candidate for MVP. I'm not blowing anyone's mind by saying those things, but I do want to say that they seem to have proven that they made the right choice by keeping those guys together. You know, when Maury came in, everyone was like, they're going to blow it up. They're going to blow it up. You know, Maury's here to blow it up. And, you know, the 76ers pushed back on that and said, no, we've got two really good, really young players. We want to find a way to make it work between them. And guess what? That's what they've done. And, you know, that's what they've worked on. And it's been impressive. And, you know, I mean, if you have two guys competing for major end of the season awards, whether or not they've won them, you know, you've had a good season. And, you know, this season has been, you know, Ben dropped, what, 42 the other night. Um, this season has been a little bit of a referendum on Ben Simmons as an offensive player, but it's also been like a reverse referendum on how underrated his defense has been and, so, you know, I mean, good for him and good for the 76ers. You know, they, they again, they bet that Doc Rivers was the right coach to unlock these two just because Doc Rivers is not a guy who's like a, you know, traditional pick and roll kind of coach. These guys are not traditional pick and roll players. They bet that he was the right guy to unlock them. They bet that Daryl Morey was the right guy to surround them with talent. And, you know, given some of the changes here, it's pretty clear, you know, Seth Curry, a big part of why... The 76ers are doing well and a big part of why the Mavericks are doing poorly. Like that was a great trade. Um, you know, they've clearly won that trade and, you know, Daryl has put the right pieces around these guys right now. Again, I think the 76ers have a really great shot at going to the finals. Um, and so, you know, I mean, they, they deserve credit for, they went all in with Simmons and Bede and Tobias Harris and Jimmy Butler. Then they punted on the Jimmy Butler thing, but kept Tobias Harris we all generally agree that that was probably a mistake, but who knows? I mean, does Jimmy Butler stay if they give him the five years? Maybe. And then they let Tobias Harris go. Um, and then, you know, Jimmy doesn't go to Miami. I mean, maybe that would have been the right move. I don't know. But the simple fact of the matter is they made that choice and they could have followed that up by, you know, I mean, because they also signed Al Horford, which was a horrible decision. And so Daryl Morey could have come in and said, we're blowing this whole thing up and we're going to do this and that, and we're going to try to trade everything. And, but instead he said, no, we've got two really good young stars. Let's reconfigure, get rid of Al Horford. Let's, you know, bring in Seth Curry and let's reconfigure the team around these two guys. Let's not blow it up. Let's retool. And, you know, they deserve all the credit in the world for doing that because it's worked really well for them this season. And a lot of people said, you got to break it up. You got to break it up. You got to break it up. And I mean, right now, 
I mean, you, if you have a defensive player of the year candidate and an MVP candidate, and those two guys have the capability of being, you know, perennially in those votes, then you do it. And not to mention, by the way, Tobias Harris has always played his best when he played for Doc Rivers. That was, you know, this he's playing back to his peak. This team works. I like Tyrese Maxey a lot, you know. And as much as I hate Philadelphia sports, I like this 76ers team. They've done the right thing. And, you know, kudos to them. And, you know, this is more proof of why Daryl Morey is a good GM. And as much as I have trashed him and said, why are we looking at him as the best in the game? He's got no rings, blah, blah, blah. We do need to, I do think, I'm not putting that Westbrook Westbrook trade on him. I'm not putting that Westbrook trade on him. I, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say I don't think that was Daryl Morey. So I'm not putting that on him. So I'm going to give him a, a little bit of a break from that. And I'm going to look at this situation that he's created. And I'm going to say, okay, this is the Daryl Morey that we love. This is the Daryl Morey that, you know, he, you know, the advanced data and the analytics and, and, you know, finding the right pieces. This is the guy we want to see. I like what the 76ers have done. I do think 76ers Lakers would be a really good finals. I just hope that the Suns can break it up and uh, be the ones to ruin it for the Lake show. That'd be great. And that is the blunt doctor show on a Wednesday, the 17th of February. Last thing I will say before we get the fuck up out of here, the NBA players are being apprehensive about participating in public service announcements about the vaccine. NBA players, don't be fucking stupid. Don't be assholes. Don't spread conspiracy theories. Get a vaccine. Tell other people to get the vaccine. Trust the science. Don't be... Don't be one of those guys. Don't be one of those anti-vaxxers. Don't be... Just don't do that. Get a fucking vaccine. Participate in the public service announcements. Help the country heal. Be on the right side of history. Just can't fucking stress it enough that all these amateur internet scientists who think they're smarter than doctors and know more about vaccines because they watched a YouTube video, it just... Don't be that guy. Don't think that your millions insulate you from reality. Just be a grown-up, be a leader. Get a vaccine. Help us convince others to get a vaccine. Be on the right side of history. That's all I'm asking of NBA players. And again, that is the Blood Doctor Show. Peace to you and yours. I hope that your 2021 is better than your 2020. And I hope that your 2022 is better than your 2021. Peace.